let me pray before I start. Thank you, Father God. We pray that you would open our hearts to your spirit, that you would give us wisdom as we study your word and, and fill us with your love because we can't do this life of Christianity without your grace and mercy. Amen. So while I was preparing this message, uh, I was putting my daughter to bed. And this is a bit of an ordeal every night. Um, I turn the lights off at 8 p.m. sharp and her mind keeps whirring for about 45 minutes afterwards. And this is her peak question time, right? So I was thinking, oh my gosh, if I had a dollar for every question she asks me, I would be so rich. But she's four years old and she loves asking questions. So some of the questions she was asking this week, it's like, mom, mom, I'm like, yes, what's 50,000 and 50? And I'm like, it's 50,000 and 50. Great. You're so smart, Mum. Okay. Is the tooth fairy real? Oh, I'm like, uh, like, what do you think? <laughs> okay. Or where was I before I was in your tummy? So you're just a twinkle in God's heart. I don't know. But anyway, there are lots of questions. And, and I love her beautiful, innocent questions because she's curious. She's got lots of wonder. And there are questions that people ask which seek wisdom. They want to learn. But there is another line of questioning that people can take. And it's demanding, accusing. They want to convict. And you can see it in a law court where, you know, a lawyer will be trying to convict someone of a crime. And I was reading Mark chapter 12 because I'll be teaching from Mark 12 today. And it felt like it should be called question time with Jesus because it was like rapid fire question and answer between Jesus and, and the people of the day. And we're going to look closely at these questions and his responses because when Jesus answers, he answers with so much wisdom. Every word is carefully chosen. But it's the wisdom of God. He is the Son of God. And what he says matters the most. So I'm going to call this message, What Matters Most?, so the objective of this message is to examine the heart of Jesus' answers and understand what doesn't matter and what does matter most. So we're up to chapter 12 out of 16 in the book of Mark. I've been preaching a chapter each time that I'm up here. And we're on the path towards the cross. We're about one week away from the death and resurrection. The atmosphere is tense. Jesus has predicted his death three times. Mark 10.33, Jesus says to his disciples, Son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. So Jesus knows. He points out specifically who his accusers are. It's going to be the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And all through the book of Mark, there's been this struggle between him and the religious leaders. And Jesus came to fulfill his calling, to reveal that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, whereas the religious leaders rejected him and they sought to destroy him. But Jesus has the authority, and he proves it. He has the authority over the natural order. He, he calms the wind and the waves. He's got authority over the spiritual order. He casts out demons. He forgives sins. And he has authority over life and death because God the Father gave it to him. 
Mark chapter 12, 10 to 11 says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. God has made Jesus the most important part, front and center, and it's a good thing. So let me start my exposition. I'm going to start from verse 13, and all scripture will be from the NIV. Verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to T. Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? It's my best Pharisee voice. I don't know if it's effective, but that's okay. Our first question comes from the group of Jewish leaders, the Herodians and Pharisees. But their goal wasn't to seek knowledge. They wanted to convict him. You can see flattery oozing from their words. You're a man of integrity. You teach the truth. But I wonder if they really believe that. Can you see their sneakiness? Listen to the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax or not? So what is this imperial tax? Well, it was the tax that the Jews were asked to pay by the Romans. And it was unpopular amongst the Jews because they despised being under Roman rule. And you'll notice when they ask the question, it's a closed question. It's yes or no. If Jesus said yes, pay the tax, he would have put the Jews offside. But if he said no, don't pay it, then he would have been guilty of rebellion. Verse 15 continued. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius, the coin, and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Jesus saw through, oh, yeah, here we go. Caesar's, they replied. So Jesus sees through their motives. He sees it and he calls it hypocrisy. And what does hypocrisy mean? What is a hypocrite? Well, a hypocrite is a person who acts in a way that goes against what he or she claims to believe or feel. Clean on the outside, dirty in the heart. The word hypocrite comes from the Greek word hypocritis, meaning actor or stage player. They're putting on a mask and a show. Jesus took the coin in his hand. Just as we have our beautiful Queen Elizabeth on one side, the denarius had the image of Caesar imprinted on it. Verse 17, this is Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Jesus is so wise in his response. He doesn't say yes or no. He says, do your legal responsibility by giving to the government what's due to them. You know, those taxes, so they're going to pay for your roads, for your schools, for your hospitals, for order and um, in your society. Do your civic duty by paying taxes, but you also want to do your spiritual duty. You do your civil duty, but you also need to do your spiritual duty by giving to God what is God's. In Genesis, it says that men and women were created in God's image. So to give God what is God's, we're giving him ourselves because every one of us bears the image of our creator. And what does God require of us? Our hearts our worship, our whole lives, our honor. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. 
The crowd were amazed at him. What an answer. Jesus, so wise. He's got wisdom from heaven. They couldn't trap him in his words there. But what they did do, if you look in Luke 23, they twisted his words and they actually flat out lied and said, Jesus told us not to pay taxes. And that's not what he said. So as we look at what matters most, it's not about the money. It's not about the politics. It's the issue of the heart. Don't be a hypocrite. Give to God what belongs to God. And does the internal world match the external? You know, for example, a business person could say they value honesty, but then be embroiled in tax evasion behind the scenes. Or a person could have the appearance of the perfect family, but they could be cheating behind closed doors. It's hypocrisy. Integrity is a state of being honest, whole, and undivided, the whole life being committed to God. Let's continue with the next story in question time with Jesus. We come face to face with a group called the Sadducees. They were known to follow just the first five books of the Bible, and they had a role in the Jewish society of overseeing temple worship and sacrifices. They didn't follow the prophets or the idea that there was life after death. So let's read from verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Well, if the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection, why are they asking this question? It's a hypothetical, far-fetched question. I mean, seven brothers all marrying the one woman and not having children? It doesn't make sense. They're trying to trick Jesus. They want to make fun of him. So Jesus, he can see through their motives in that question as well. So let's look at verse 24. Jesus replied, Are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Ooh, ouch been rebuked by Jesus, Sadducees. He says, you are in error. You are badly mistaken because A, you don't know the scriptures and B, you don't know the power of God. And this can happen when a group can take one part of the Bible and make everything and they neglect the rest of it. They made the first five books of the Bible everything and neglected the rest. You know, sometimes Uh, They focused on the temple offerings and the sacrifices, and there was no room in their belief system for a Messiah or a Savior. A group can be so focused on the love of mercy of God and not focus that there's a judgment. Or a group can be so focused on that God will answer all your prayers no matter what you pray, but they neglect the part that says pray in the will of God. We need to have a balanced 
and thorough knowledge of the scripture. We can't just say this is our gospel. We need to have an overarching, full and thorough knowledge. Otherwise, we can be mistaken as well. So let's go to what he says about the marriage after the resurrection. Jesus said that there is no marriage at the resurrection. Each person will have a new body and it will be like angels in heaven. So the family units we have here on earth are limited to our lifetime. Makes me sad, however, in God's wisdom, he understands. So God is the God of the living. Jesus is quoting from the book of Exodus, which is the second book. So he's actually speaking straight to the Sadducees. God spoke to Moses in the burning bush and he said, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. How can he be their God if they're dead? He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Jacob, I was the God of Isaac. He said, I am, because they're with him, they're alive. In Mark 9, Jesus was up on the mountain and he was transfigured. And that means you know, his appearance became dazzling white. He looked like his face was shining like the sun. And standing there on that mountain was Moses and Elijah, who'd lived thousands of years before this time in history. How could they be talking to Jesus if they were dead? They're living. So there's a resurrection is really true. I am not sure if my brain can compute it. However, this is where we have to trust in the power of God. Because Jesus said, you know, Sadducees, you're not understanding the power of God. By the power of God, all things are possible. The dead are raised. The lame are healed. A man can survive being in the belly of a fish for three days. A teenage boy can defeat a giant. A dead man can be raised. The power of God. And it's not what we expect. What matters most? It's not our thoughts or expectations about the afterlife that matter. What matters most is the truth and the authority of the scriptures and the sovereignty of God. Because the kingdom of God is opposite to the kingdom of the world. And so we need to take hold of the word of God and and put our trust in that. Let's continue on to question three. Verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Maybe this was a trick question. Would Jesus place one commandment above the other? Is keeping the Sabbath more important than um, not coveting? Or is not coveting more important or than not murdering? What will Jesus say? Verse 29. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So Jesus sums up the law and the prophets with one statement. And it's not just one, but two um, commandments. Love God with all your heart, your passion, Love him with all your soul, with your emotions, being tender-hearted toward God. With your will, make your decisions based on the love of God. Love him with your mind, your thoughts being centered on him. Love him with your strength, giving your body and energy to loving God. 
basically a life centered around the Lord based out of love. You know, I serve my family. I make sure that there's food in their lunch boxes, there's clean clothes in their drawers, and you know, I fill up the car with petrol and, and do all the things that I need to do. And I, I, I serve them 24-7. And sometimes I'm like, oh my God, this is hard work, because it's a duty. However, when I remember that I love them, I love my family, I love them with all my heart, I love them, I do it out of love and not obligation. And I'm thankful for the privilege of serving them because I love them. It's the same, uh, say, with your workplace. You could be working in your job and go, oh my gosh, this is so hard and I'm doing all these things. But when we remember that we're serving, we're serving out of love, we're, we're serving and working as for the Lord, it suddenly is like, oh, I can obey out of love. When it says, oh, it's just, yeah, we can obey and serve God out of duty and not love, but out of love comes obedience. When it says to love our neighbor as ourselves, we know that each one of us does what we need to care for ourselves. You know, we clean ourselves, we feed ourselves, we care about ourselves, but we aren't commanded to love ourselves. We're actually commanded to love others as we love ourselves, caring and being unselfish, considering the needs of others as well as our own. These are the two most important commandments. And if we obey and do not love, it's like putting on that mask, doing the works to look good on the outside, but inside we've neglected the issues of the heart. Verse 32. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with your whole heart and all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. The teacher's agreeing with him. Jesus' words are wisdom and truth. And in two sentences, Jesus has summarized the whole Bible. Burnt offerings and sacrifices were a way of being made right with God in the Old Testament. And they were required. You know, there was no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And so they would um, kill an animal, the blood was shed, and they could confess their sins. Jesus came with a new way in the New Testament. We'll talk about that another time. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom, mate. He's close, but he still hasn't got the full picture. And I'll come back to that point in the conclusion. But it's funny how no one dares to ask him any more questions. Because the Holy Spirit is so powerful, he's so spot on with his um, his wisdom, no one can refute it. And, and we sometimes think, oh, I don't know what to say. How will I answer that question? Well, we can trust the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom. Yeah. So what matters most? It's not about the burnt offerings or the sacrifices or the duties. The most important thing is to love God with all our hearts, and to love people. So, continuing on. Verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? 
David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hands until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be, how then can he be his son? Jesus is quoting Psalm 110 verse 11, verse 1. And all throughout the Old Testament, David is a type of Christ. He's like a, a foreshadowing of Christ. He's a shepherd, a warrior, and a king. And many of the Psalms that he wrote point to Jesus in the future. And even the Gospel of Matthew opens up. This is the genealogy of, of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. With his crucifixion just days away, he's questioning the crowd. Who do you think I am? Do you see the connection from the Messiah to me? Can you see I am he? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. What matters most? Jesus is the Messiah. He's in the line of David, but even greater than him. We ought to listen to him and accept his authority. Continuing on with verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus had a lot to say to condemn the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And if you want a more complete version of what he says about this, go to Matthew 23. And Jesus details the woe coming to them. They're the brood of vipers who take pride in their position. They like being called father, rabbi, teacher. They like having that title. You know. And we need to be careful because, you know, we can get into this, like, hyper-honor of church leaders and, and preachers. You know, the person on the stage with the microphone being a celebrity, goodness, <laughs> no. They are a child of God. They're a brother, a sister. They're, doing, they're a servant doing the work set before them. And I've, I've been in churches where um, we were required to bow and, and kiss the hand of the priest. I've, I've been in churches where... Um, the pastor received a standing ovation just because they were there. And, you know, the, the praise and glory needs to go to the Lord, not to the servant doing the job, no? Instead of loving God and loving people, the Pharisees wanted people to love them. And they used and abused the most vulnerable rather than helping them. They devoured widows' houses. What? You know, those widows need houses. They don't need to put it in the offering. They need somewhere to live. It's despicable that they would leave the widows homeless for the sake of a bit of fundraising. Jesus is not happy. You know, Jesus himself came to serve and not to be served. He said those who humble themselves will be exalted. Look at John 21. Jesus was cooking their breakfast for them. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus if, and if Jesus is going to cook their breakfast, he's probably washed up too. You know, Jesus probably did their laundry. Jesus probably, you know, cleaned and dusted. Because that's the kind of man Jesus was. If he's going to cook breakfast, he will do other things too. You know, would the Pharisees be seen cooking the breakfast? Would the Pharisees be seen collecting the rubbish and putting it in the bin? 
Would the Pharisees be seen cleaning the toilets? Would we? And that's the question we need to ask ourselves. Because is it all for show or is it from your heart? So what does not matter? What doesn't matter are the robes, the places of honour in the banquets, the important seats, the lengthy, meaningless prayers. But what does matter most is that humility, having a servant's heart, praying the will of God, keeping it simple. Love God, love people. Let's continue with verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Imagine that you're in a place where your giving is on display and Jesus is watching. There's the rich here, the poor, and those in between. But one woman captured his attention that day. It was the widow. And in her act of giving, she demonstrated her trust in the Lord that he would supply for her needs. She demonstrated love for God and humility. But think about those others who gave so much. You know, and maybe you've heard it said before, it's not about equal giving but equal sacrifice. But it's actually about not taking advantage of people. The widows were taking, uh, taken advantage of by the Pharisees. The passage should be about the love of God. And it's not the size of the gift that matters. It's the attitude of the heart that gives the gift. And it's about helping those in need instead of taking advantage of them. Okay, so I'm going to conclude and take, um, take us on a little bit of a heart journey. So, in conclusion, what doesn't matter the most? Okay, politics doesn't matter the most. It doesn't matter whether you're Roman or Jewish, liberal or labor, it doesn't matter in the kingdom of God. Secondly, possessions. Whether one donates millions to the church or two copper coins, it's not the amount of money that impresses God. Position, whether you're sitting in the front row or the back row, whether you're the boss or the employee, that doesn't matter to God. Outward appearance, what you're wearing, even the good deeds that you do is not what's most important. But what does matter most to God? Firstly, hearts that are submitted to God, giving God what belongs to him, our worship and honour. Faith, trusting God, his word and his power. Humility, not exalting oneself but being a servant and love and obedience to God, following the first and second most important commandment. And I'll be honest with you, as I've been preparing this message my heart has been cut to pieces again because I've been holding the mirror of the word to my heart and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got so many things out of place. There are times that I've been, I've been a hypocrite. You know, I've had sinful attitudes. I've struggled with temptation and I kept coming to church and I'd be sipping my coffee and I'm struggling with insecurity. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm an imposter. And I wonder, you know, imposter syndrome, I often get that. But I wonder as you know, you're listening to the word being preached, do you get the sense that, oh my gosh, that's me too? 
Do you get that sense? Oh, I, I can't hit the mark. But this is where I want to encourage you. I don't want you to leave here going, oh my gosh, Athena, woe is me. No. Let's listen to what the Lord says, yeah? I want to give you the meat of the word for this week. So when you go out there and live it out, you are equipped with a thorough understanding of the scriptures so that you can apply it to your lives. So let's start by saying, Rabbi, you're not far from the kingdom, but you're not quite there yet. A person who loves God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and loves their neighbor as themselves, they sound like they're doing pretty well, yeah? Yep. How can I do that if I can't? Oh, I can't do that with all my heart. How can I get into the kingdom? Well, let's look at what it says in the word. One must acknowledge their need for Jesus as Lord and Savior. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So how can we apply that? So number one, we can recognize where our hearts are out of line and we can repent. We can turn from our sin and we can turn to God and ask for his forgiveness. In Hebrews 10, it says we can come to his throne of, to find grace and mercy in our time of need. We will not be treated as our sins deserve because of the blood of Jesus. His death on the cross and his resurrection will take away our sin. Two, by faith draw near to God. James 4 verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Find yourself at his throne and cast your cares, your sins, your worries unto him because he cares for you. And number three, be empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not possible to do this Christian life on our own. When we become children of God, his Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And this Holy Spirit is a seal that guarantees your inheritance. You know, the Holy Spirit is your helper, your comforter, your advocate. It will remind you of the scriptures and the power of God. How did Jesus have such incredible wisdom? By the power of the Spirit. Just like my little girl who has a million questions, you may have a billion questions, but allow the Holy Spirit to direct you and give you wisdom. So what matters most? Your heart, submitted and surrendered to God, loving God and loving people. If I could invite the musicians to come up. I'm just going to have a few moments of ministry time where I want you just to allow yourself in the presence of the Lord to take some time to allow the Holy Spirit to minister to your hearts. Maybe you want to bow your heads or have a time where you close your eyes and reflect. I want you to let the word of God just fall on your, the soil of your heart. And maybe you've got um, hard, rocky ground, or maybe you've got weeds in there or thorns that are, are choking out the word. But I just want to ask the Lord right now to, to plow up that, the parts of your heart that feel like they're hardened those parts that feel like there's distractions or worries or cares of the world. I just want to pray that that you will shine that, that light of the mirror, and Lord, that you will take some action 
You know, if you know that you've been a hypocrite, where position or power or possessions have been more important to you than submission, where you've sinned and you thought, oh my gosh, I've sinned, or then you've gone into hyper mode where you've thought, oh, I'll make up for it with extra sacrifices later, extra service, I'll make myself look good on the outside, but not considering that you can come to the Lord and you can have your heart cleansed through repentance and forgiveness. Now let's get honest with God. Allow his love to come in. God demonstrates his love for us by pouring out his love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Allow him to come in. Allow him to cleanse you. Allow him to give you a spiritual bath and make you clean. When we confess our sins, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Let the Holy Spirit fill you and empower you to walk in paths of righteousness. And out of love, you can walk out your obedience. If you want to solidify those thoughts, you can pray this very simple prayer with me. Just repeat these words after me. Father God, I acknowledge that I have sinned. By the blood of Jesus Christ, forgive me. Empower me by your Holy Spirit. For your kingdom and glory forever. Amen. Amen. 